it's not just that people become poor and then they, you know, immediately become drug addicted or, or commit suicide. In fact, most, you know, if you look around the world, especially most poor people don't do any of those things. You know, this is not a, this is not a straightforward causal story. What happens instead is that, you know, declining economic prospects for men, especially makes it harder, for instance, for men to get married, you know, men who don't get married or don't, can't stay married are much less likely to be, you know, strongly attached to their, to their families. They're much less likely to attend church. They're much more likely to drop out of other kinds of community, church, and, and other sort of forms of social participation. And, you know, over time, what that leads to is, you know, for a lot of these people is a sort of deep sense of, of loneliness, frankly, and despair, you know, which ultimately culminates in their turning to, you know, these really destructive habits, which are sort of the proximate cause of their death. So, so it's a complicated, it's a really elegant and complicated story. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? My guest today is Brendan Case. Brendan is the Associate Director for Research of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Science. The program aims to study and promote human flourishing and to develop systematic approaches to the synthesis of knowledge across disciplines. Brendan is a theologian who examines several topics ranging from well-being and religious participation to homeschooling and philosophical accounts of happiness. Before coming to Harvard, he completed his Doctor of Theology at Duke Divinity School and served as a postdoctoral research associate at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. I asked guests to give me a little bit of background where they came from. How did you end up at the Human Flourishing Program? Yeah, well, you know, I uh, I found my way into academic theology, like a lot of people do, I suppose, because I, I realized that the only thing I was really interested in, in doing in a life in the law, for instance, which I was also considering as an undergraduate, was uh, studying constitutional law. And I figured, you know, if you, I'm going to become an academic anyway, I might as well not take on law school style debt, you know, and so I, I ended up, I decided to go to divinity school instead. And I did a master's degree at, at Duke, and which was an incredible place to to study theology. And I ended up sticking around there, you know, to do the doctor of theology program. So I was, we were in Durham for quite a long time and, and I loved our time there. And as that was coming to a close, you know, my, my time in the doctor of theology program, I was like a lot of people in the, in the humanities these days, I was preparing myself for a life of dignified poverty, you know, as a high school Latin teacher or something like that. And I ended up, I think, partly because of the wide-ranging, if not incoherent, set of interests that I had nourished, you know, alongside my 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 sort of more focused work in training to be an academic theologian, interest in psychology and and sociology and political science. I ended up getting a, a postdoc at Baylor on an interdisciplinary uh, research team that was studying accountability as a virtue. That was a theme, and it brought together psychologists, sociologists, and philosophers, and then me and one of the theologian. And that that team led me eventually to, to be connected with my uh, my current boss, Tyler Vanderwill, who's the director of the Human Flourishing Program at, at Harvard. And by a, a really wonderful and fortuitous series of events, I ended up getting this this awesome job as associate director for, for research at HFH, where my, 
my mandate is sort of to foster within our, our very interdisciplinary program research staff to foster the kinds of interdisciplinary conversations that I found so fascinating, you know, over my life as an academic. So finding ways to bring the social sciences and the humanities into into closer and more robust dialogue in particular. So it's a treat to work there, you know, and it's a, yeah, it's a real privilege. So what compels Tyler to hire a theologian at the Institute for Quantitative Social Science? I think I would think of sociologists or economists, but a theologian. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one one strong subtext of our of our program, although this wouldn't necessarily show up on the website, is that Tyler himself is a Christian. He's a relatively recent convert to Roman Catholicism, and and you know his own his own intellectual journey has has also been marked by really strong interdisciplinary interests. He has extensive training in philosophy and theology alongside his you know enormous CV in in biostatistics and epidemiology. You know, which is a primary area of focus. And so you know when he founded the program in 2016, his vision for it was really that it would be a truly Catholic, you know, small-c Catholic home for, for conversations about flourishing from across all the disciplines, all the relevant disciplines, so not just the social sciences, which also do, I mean, you're right, have a hard time talking to each other, and it's amazing how much talking past one another there is even between economists and psychologists, say. But, but you know, he was really committed to bringing in initially philosophy, but also had a strong interest in, in bringing, bringing the theological tradition into the conversation as well. And, you know, I think we, our kind of basic operating principle, I think, in, in terms of, you know, in that animates all of the work we do as a program is that, you know, empirical research without genuine humanistic understanding, uh, this is sort of misquoting Kant, I guess, you know, empirical research without genuine humanistic understanding is blind, but humanistic inquiry without genuine empirical research is empty, you know, and so you, the challenge is to bring them together and, and in complementary ways to sort of foster a, a really fruitful dialogue, you know, and so I, th- I think that the, and this is challenging, you know, of course, I mean, it's not as though you put all of those disciplines in a room together and, and often the conversation grinds to a halt, <laughs> you know, and so we, it's so a lot of what, a lot of what we do is, is, is right now is take time to try to get up to speed on each other's disciplines, you know, to be honest, so that we can have meaningful conversations across our kind of narrow disciplinary boundaries but we found it to be amazingly fruitful, to be honest. I mean, if you to slow down and and for social the social scientists, I guess I would say, and of course I can't speak as one myself, but my, my experience of working with them is that I think they find it very fruitful to realize that concepts which psychologists say are apt to sort of blow right past, you know, so that so the idea of love as a trait, for instance, which is something we're working on as a program right now, it's sort of eye opening for them to realize that there are thousands of years worth of of really intense reflection philosophical and theological reflection on what this trait is and what 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 kinds it comes in you know how they're subdivided and how they relate to the good life and how they go wrong you know and, and the idea that you might need actually to pause over those conversations before you try to develop a kind of working definition to use to implement an empirical research that's kind of revelatory actually and it's been i think it's been very very generative for them, you know, to realize that there are these, there's all these resources that they, in their own disciplinary training, aren't made to reckon with, you know, but actually can be very fruitful in shaping empirical inquiry, you know, in, in a number of ways. Yeah, and I've read a lot of the work that's come out of the Human Flourishing Program. And I, I agree that it's greatly benefited by the interdisciplinary conversation that you have there. So changing gears a little bit to talk about your work. So curiosity is one of the great modern virtues. Relentless progress requires us to be constantly curious about the world around us. However, at one point in time, curiosity was considered to be a form of vice. So what might Dante have to say to a faculty member like me at a major research institution about the potential dangers of curiosity? 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, this is a uh, one of my favorite things I've written actually as yeah, a little essay on curiosity as a vice. You know, which of course uh, Dante is a great has a great interest in it as well. His uh, the twenty sixth canto of his Inferno is devoted, among other things, to the vice of curiosity as it's sort of embodied in the the figure of Odysseus, uh, Ulysses. You know, from from ancient philosophy, who uh, for Dante is a figure of a man who's overcome by a kind of perverse desire for knowledge, and that's that's what curiosity in Latin curiositas uh, was for the ancients and the medieval tradition. It was a sort of a sort of restless desire for knowledge that was unmoored from any larger concern for one's own flourishing or for the flourishing of those those around one around the knower and you know I think the you're right that we talk about curiosity now as a, an almost unmitigated virtue. The vice label is just barely with us in the proverb about curiosity killing the cat, you know, but only just right I mean this is a, it's a bit of a strange proverb I think to people today for the, for just that reason. But the idea is really important because what the idea flags up is the fact that knowledge can go wrong, that the search for knowledge can go wrong, not just when it fails to terminate in truth, right? We all recognize that one of the aims of knowing is to develop true beliefs about the world, adequate to reality, however you define them. And universities, by and large, are pretty good at this. You know, this is what universities, they've built up a whole infrastructure, you know, over the centuries designed to focus the inquiry for knowledge in the direction to bias it reliably in the direction of true beliefs. But we're much less good in general. And I think elite institutions are in some ways worse than average actually today at reflecting on whether our desires for knowledge have gone wrong in two ways in particular. And so so the desire for knowledge can become disordered both when we we desire something we ought to know, but we desire it in the wrong way, you know? And so the I mean, just to take a really banal example, you know, the the eminent researcher who's published 500 papers but has no relationship with his kids and his marriage has fallen apart is a person in whom the desire for knowledge has probably gone wrong at some point. You know, it's become disconnected from his overall flourishing. And Dante would call that curiositas. That's a vicious desire for knowledge. Um, another way that the, that desire can go wrong is when we desire to know things we ought not to know. And this is another area where I think, you know, we're not doing nearly as well as we could. The paradigmatic examples of this in the ancient tradition are always the desire to know what it's like to commit a, some kind of sin. The desire to have first-person knowledge of what it would be like to kill somebody, you know, a sort of paradigm, right? Uh, you shouldn't want to know that, you know? But I mean, I think there are, there, are, there are more contemporary examples, though, that are kind of closer to the ground for us, which raise pretty difficult questions. I mean, so, you know, the, the knowledge of what it would be like to genetically alter twins so that they have an inborn resistance to contracting HIV, right? This is now a real, this is a real thing that happened, right? There's a guy out there, you know, a researcher in China who has that knowledge, you know, it's not all obvious actually, but that's a, that's a kind of knowledge which probably can be desired licitly, you know? And so I think the existence of technologies like CRISPR, for instance, gene editing technologies raise really serious questions about, about not just the way in which we use them, but whether there are certain, certain objects of knowledge, which we're pursuing, which can't be well and which are sort of properly, properly out of bounds. And I think this is a, it's just an area, it's not even just that we don't attend to this as, as often as we should. We really don't have a language, we don't have a vocabulary for conceptualizing it in the way we would need to in order to discuss it, you know, in, in a fulsome and meaningful way. That's really interesting. Pope Francis recently spoke out against cancel culture, calling it ideological colonization. But isn't cancel culture really just public practice of the virtue of accountability? Yeah, I was uh, I was surprised, and I'll, I'll say I was kind of heartened to see that statement from the Pope. He's fascinating man. You never know what he's going to say. You know, that's why he's so interesting. It's so interesting to be to be uh, watching the church. You know, in this period uh, for just that reason. But yeah, I mean, I take your point. 
my sense is that cancel culture is the expression cancel culture is an incomplete it what it picks out is an incomplete concept this is what i would say it's not it's not a on its own as it's sort of commonly used it doesn't convey at least for me sufficient information to know whether i should be i should be excited about i should be upset or excited about its application in a given case you know and so i'm i'm i mean i'm with you i think to, to a certain extent that i mean there's a there is a there was an ongoing and increasingly nasty debate within the American right between group that sort of identifies itself with a kind of Lockean strain, you know, in the American founding, right, right liberals or however you want to, a kind of libertarian, you know, a camp on the, on the right, which takes a, you know, a fairly absolutist view about this phenomenon, you know, that it's sort of a, on sort of formal procedural grounds, you know, we shouldn't be restricting speech, you know, we should be pro pluralism sort of in a fairly maximal sense, pro diversity in a fairly maximal sense. And, you know, there's a, there's an increasingly vocal, I think still, you know, in absolute terms, very small minority on the right, the, the common good conservatives or whatever you want to call them, you know, who I think they make a number of very reasonable points in response to this, the right, the right liberal camp, you know, to the effect that nobody really believes in any meaningful sense and in, in absolute freedom of speech. And there are, of course, I mean, and everybody agrees, everybody, all parties agree, you know, you shouldn't be able to shout fire in a crowded theater or whatever, you know, clear, clear and speech that poses clear and present danger, of course, is out of bounds. And But the interesting, but even beyond that, even if you have that level of common ground, there are always going to be interesting boundary cases. I don't think anybody, I mean, to take the really, the really obvious reductio ad Hitlerum, you know, uh, no one's, no one, I, my guess is no party to that, to that debate would have any qualms about, you know, an avowed neo-Nazi, you know, being denied tenure at American, at an American university, you know. And so I think the question is always going to be, to what extent does the public good, common good, include the protection of a certain zone of liberty, you know, that's afforded to, to individuals? And I think it does. I mean, I pr- probably, uh, my, I guess my, my guess is that my my views about the scope of that zone probably differ significantly from a lot of the, the common good conservatives, you know, in terms of what I, what, what I take to be, you know, ordered to the common good. But yeah, so I, I don't think it's right to inveigh against cancel culture, you know, as a monolith, as though it's always bad, you know, to be to be against prescribing objectionable views, you know, from certain kinds of public airing. Yeah, so I think it's more, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't have principled grounds, I guess, yeah, for, for thinking that that's, that's sort of an absolute, an absolute necessity. You have to take it more on a case by case basis, I think, and, and ask really about the substance of the views, and whether they're, to what extent they're reasonable, to what extent they're grounded in, in evidence, and to what extent they contribute to real and pressing public evils, you know, I mean, I think these are, and these are hard questions that you can't decide a priori, you know, so. So I ask this question even a little bit more directly, so how might Google, Facebook, Twitter practice the virtue of accountability well? So they do have a certain responsibility, although they're not publishers, so to speak, they do, it, it's becoming increasingly obvious they do have some roles as at least part of their role is as a publisher of, of, of online content. And they've, they've begun to take on that role. So how did they practice that virtue of accountability well within that context? Yeah, no, it's a hard question. And I mean, you know, I think there are two, there are two considerations here in a way, which, which sort of cut in opposite directions. So on the one hand, as you say, you know, they, uh, despite their pretension to be sort of neutral carriers, they are in fact publishing, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the most significant public outlets for news and other information in the world, you know, and it's clear that they have, you know, they, they've become increasingly aggressive and, ex- and sort of embracing that role, at least in certain, in certain moments, you know, so, uh, I mean, most, most famously, notoriously, I guess, Twitter kicking Donald Trump off of its site, you know, with all, all the other major outlets following suit, you know, shortly after, 
Okay, so so on the one hand, you're, I think I think it's true. Unavoidably, they have a responsibility for the kind of the kinds of content that they carry, you know. And there's no way around, you know, they're being at least morally entangled. You know, I mean, the question of le- what legal prescriptions ought to attach to that moral entanglement are just beyond my scope, I think. And I won't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to choose to choose to sort of sidestep those questions because they're you know, the, what exactly section 230 is and, you know, what implications it has for contemporary debates. I just, I, you know, I won't, I won't pretend to have any expertise on that, but, but yeah, so, so morally, no, they do. Uh, they certainly do have a, a fairly deep responsibility in, in that regard. And I think it's, it was always self-serving at best to pretend that they didn't, you know, on the other hand, and this is, I mean, what, what I find most troubling, I suppose, is that they, Twitter and Google say, and Amazon as well, you know, they increasingly act in the public sphere as, I would say, you know, quasi-governmental monopolies within the relative spaces. You know, I mean, a- Amazon and Google in particular, you know, I mean, really are, are, are unavoidable, I think, in a lot of ways. And if you, if you want to write a book, for instance, and you can't host it on Amazon, you might as well not have written it. You know, and I think from the standpoint of sales, and the same thing is true for Google. You know, if you hope to, if you have a website which you'd like people to access and Google, you know, is, is deliberately burying your site in the search results, you know, you might as well not have a website, you know. And so I think that that, that raises, it does raise very, there are always going to be troubling questions, frankly, which arise when private, when when notionally private actors assume quasi-governmental authority over the lives of other of other private actors, you know. And so, I think that long term, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic, I guess, to the view that these entities have become something like public utilities and ought to be ought to be regulated as such, you know, and that the oversight that they exercise over public expression of various kinds is properly a governmental oversight and we should just recognize and treat it as such, you know? And so, yeah, so I think that it's, uh, how that's going to play out even near term. I, I honestly don't, I don't know, you know, and I don't, one of the, I mean, one of the difficulties I think of our present moment is that there is such deep division, you know, within just American society, even about how to characterize the most pressing problems that we're facing, you know, is really too, I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 you talk to especially, you know, very partisan Democrats and Republicans, and you sort of get a picture of, of two, you know, almost different planets, you know, that they, they seem to be living on. And, and I think, you know, it's not, and I don't mean to, I think even very partisan members, you know, from both camps would probably be pointing in, in, in each cases to, you know, some very real and legitimate concerns, you know, which, which any, any sane person would want to try to address in a kind of, in a kind of fuller and synthetic way, you know? Yeah. So that's the challenge, you know, is how do you regulate public action in that environment where it's difficult to achieve even meaningful agreement on what the evils are, much less how to address them, you know? Uh, And I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have, uh, don't have really obvious solutions to that problem. So over the last two years, as you know, and many of us know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen a major uptick in homeschooling for various reasons, you know, ranging from a concern about the virus to concerns about the potentially negative impact of virtual learning. And this raised serious concerns among what we might call the progressive elite. I'd hate to use that term, but I can't think of a better one. So I think particularly, I might get this pronunciation incorrect, but Elizabeth Bartholet, a Harvard law professor, sparked a debate in May of 2020 by calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. So what's so threatening about homeschoolers? Yeah, you know, education, going back, you know, say 150 years even, probably longer, longer than that. Education has for a really long time been one of the most important sites of conflict between the authority of the state, the family, and the church, really over who, you know, and these are, I point to those three because they're uh, the three institutions that Pope Pius, I think it's the 11th, identify as the three necessary societies. These are, you know, the 
these are three societies, and you might we might even just say to be to be a little more in a somewhat more more pluralist vein, you might just say you know the the state or the polity, the family and and religious community, you know, are sort of the three most enduring central nodes, you know, of a, of an individual's life, the three most important points of, of social connection, you know, that, that, that most people experience in all times and places. And, you know, understandably, all of these institutions see themselves as having a stake in the nurture, the rearing and the nurture of children, you know, for a state, you know, if a state doesn't take an interest in the existence of its next generation, there's not much point in it taking an interest in anything else, right? It doesn't need to get social security, right? If there's not going to be any people around, you know, to draw the checks. And so, you know, it's understandable that as the state, particularly in their, you know, modern period, as as states have scaled up and have suddenly found themselves with money, you know, to spend on things, of course, they took an interest naturally in, in trying to promote public education. Education until the 19th century, you know, and almost everywhere, was the responsibility of families and, and the church or religious communities. You know, that was, that was just the, the nature of things. So there wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity for that conflict to arise between the family and the, and the state and the way it has in the modern period as the state has sort of taken a more robust interest in, in education. But what's come along with that, you know, and we've, we've seen this in society after society, you know, is that as states, the more ambitious states become in their vision, you know, for shaping the lives of their of their citizens, the more threatened they feel by alternative modes of educating kids, you know, I mean, the, the, and so this is, and I mean, most, the most dramatic examples are in totalitarian states, you know, of course, Soviet Russia, you know, effectively closing down, I mean, you know, doing it, it's damned to eliminate not just religious schools, but, you know, religion itself, you know, as a, as a, as a public institution, for instance. Yeah. So I think, you know, for all that's, I guess, sort of, by way of broad background to say, you know, the concern I think that animates Elizabeth Bartlett's objections to homeschooling are really longstanding. And they're sort of in line with this long tradition of strong states and the representatives, you know, feeling threatened by the existence of these independent nodes of authority over the, over children, you know, in the form of particularly of, of family. There are similar, and, you know, it's interesting that in her, the law review note uh, in which she, she sort of advanced this argument for the presumptive nationwide ban on homeschooling, she connected homeschooling, the danger of homeschooling with the danger of religious indoctrination as well. You know, so these concerns are always very tightly bound together that, you know, the, that fa- the families and the churches work in concert, you know, is the fear to, to sort of turn children from the womb against the purposes of the sort of the more enlightened purposes of the state. You know, the state has a certain vision or it's, you know, again, I say it's, it's representative self-appointed in some cases has a certain vision, you know, for whether it's the new Soviet man, you know, or sort of a, a woke, prog- the woke, the woke progressive kid of the future is going to be like, you know, and parents stand in the way of that. Parents have sort of benighted views, you know, which need to be taken out of the equation insofar as that's possible. Um, so yeah, my guess is that that's, I mean, that, that's how I would put it, I suppose, at a certain, at a, at a basic level, there's just a conflict between the state's interest in education, if it becomes ambitious enough and, and the parents' interest in, in educating their kids. And that's sort of basic. And one thing that really struck me about Bartlett's piece was also connecting not just religious indoctrination, but abuse to homeschooling. And I found that really interesting. I mean, all the homeschool families I know, that, that just really surprised me that that was sort of the sort of the public perception of the sort of typical homeschooling families that essentially sort of bonkers religious zealots who are hiding abuse from public authorities. So, to what extent is there any truth there? I read a paper that showed that experiences of PTSD are actually higher within homeschooling families. To what extent is there any truth to this sort of concern about abuse within sort of homeschooling settings? 
Yeah. So we did, we actually found that, you know, on the, the paper, our team has recently published a paper on, on different, you know, what well-being outcomes by, by school type. And yeah, we did find one of the findings that we report in that paper is a higher level of reported PTSD among homeschooling kids in this, in the sample, which is, which ranged from beginning in about the year 2000 up through 2010 in terms of follow-up. It was a, it was a, the finding was less robust statistically than some of the other findings in the research. It wasn't, uh, it didn't survive what's called Bonferroni correction, where you, you know, statistically adjust the results to, to account for, for sort of ba- background factors, you know, about the study population. Yeah, and in, mul- in multiple testing. Yes, exactly right. So I will say I don't, apart from that finding, I don't have any, any you know, deep subject matter expertise into the prevalence of child abuse within homeschooling compared with other school types. I'll say we, we also homeschool our kids. I mean, we have four kids and, and the two oldest are in second grade and kindergarten and they're, they're homeschooled, partly for the reasons you indicated. You know, we started doing it with COVID and, and uh, we've got, you know, quite a lot of homeschooling families around here. And, and yeah, anecdotally, I will say like you, that Bartlett's depiction does not at all ring true to my own experience of it. But but I do, I will say in defense of Bartlett's point here, I think there is a real concern here, which, which you know, there's a, she's chasing a genuine a genuine good, which has to be traded off, I think, against other genuine goods. And the good is is that of having an adult present in the lives of children who has a fiduciary responsibility to report abuse, you know, if she sees it. And this is, you know, there aren't that many, you know, teachers are legally bound. So it's a stronger obligation than just the sort of ordinary moral obligation I think any adult would feel, you know, to take action if they knew that a kid was being being abused. But And teachers also have regular access, you know, again, to kids. This is another, you know, so... Teachers typically see their students, you know, five days a week. And so students are, are coming in. So I say that because I, w- one of the things I know for certain is that teachers are among the most common non-family members to report abuse, child abuse, you know, to child protective services. And so, yeah, it is, a, it does raise, I understand why it raises a concern. You know, if you take teachers out of the equation, who are the other adults, you know, in a kid's life, if a kid's being abused, you know, who, who might be in a position to notice and report and report the abuse. Yeah. So that is a good, I mean, I think that's a, that it's a good, which is, you know, like, like everything could be liable to abuse, you know, and, and, uh, has to be traded off against other goods, you know, which we can't maximally pursue every good, you know, in the world. This is just in the, we live in the real world. You have to, you have to trade goods off against one another, you know, every, every approach has costs. So, yeah, so I wouldn't want to pretend, you know, that a, a society which, in my view, rightly recognizes the right, right of parents to educate their children within at least a, a first blush right, you know, prima facie right of parents to educate their children as they see fit. A society which recognizes that rights, you know, in recognizing it has to trade off certain other goods, which it might pursue if it didn't recognize it. And there are plenty of societies around the world today which don't recognize that right. You know, most of Europe has the kind of presumptive nationwide ban against against homeschooling that uh, Bartlett's calling for. So it's not unprecedented. Lots of lots of sub-Saharan Africa has it too. You know, it's not a this would not be a, a totally novel undertaking, you know, if we instituted such a ban. And in a way, we're sort of, this is one of the one of the ways in which we're exceptional, really, globally, is in the prevalence of homeschooling, particularly under under COVID. But even, even prior to COVID, we were really, really an outlier, I think, and in the extent to which that had remained, you know, a common, a common educational form. Yeah, so I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a good and important thing. I think even advocates should recognize it's not an approach which comes without any costs, you know, and, you know, I think it's a, but in that it's like everything else that we do in the world, everything has costs, you know, we should just take what we want, pay for it. You know, the same paper that you mentioned, you found that some of the major benefits of homeschooling seem to be higher levels of pro-social virtues, such as volunteering, forgiveness, church attendance. 
Is this simply the types of families that tend to homeschool kids, or is this something implicit to the model of homeschooling that produces these sort of pro-social virtues? Yeah, so the findings, those findings, you know, show up in this cohort even after controlling, you know, at baseline for everything you might want to control for, you know, so it's, it's lifting out family socioeconomic status, it's lifting out family religiosity, religious service attendance, you know, it's equalizing by race, you know, say, I mean, so... There are strong indicators, you know, given the study design, that these findings are causal to some extent. That there's not there's not reverse causation happening here. You know that that it's just the more more religious or nicer families or whatever are opting into preferentially opting into homeschooling, and that's why you see the split. You know, so yeah, so it does raise a really interesting question about what why school type seems to be making such a difference. You know, homeschoolers really stand out compared with public schoolers in particular on those on the measures you mentioned and. You know, I think there are two ways of thinking about this, I guess, or at least two ways of thinking about it. And, you know, you might ask on the one hand, well, why is homeschooling, why does homeschooling seem to be so effective, you know, at promoting these these virtuous behaviors? But you might also ask, you know, another way of thinking about it might be, you know, well, maybe it's the case that public school, for whatever reason, has become particularly ineffective at promoting. <laughs> maybe public school has become a positive hindrance, you know, in the lives of kids who participate in it to stepping into those, I would say, fairly ordinary pro-social behaviors. You know, I mean, it's, it wouldn't have been that long ago that, you know, the idea that kids volunteered or went to church wouldn't have seemed particularly striking. It's becoming more striking, I think, given the separation on these on these measures between homeschoolers, say, and the broader population. But I don't think that the data we have at the moment really lets us say decisively, you know, which of the school types is exercising, you know, more efficacious causality here, you know, and, and uh, my own hunch, I guess, is that it's probably at least as much, you know, the unpropitious environment in public schools constituting a kind of positive hindrance to students, you know, maturing morally in those ways. So what would stand in the way of that sort of character education within a public education system? Well, I mean, in principle, what stands in the way? I mean, in principle, nothing, really. I mean, I think, well, it's not as though there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of work being done right now on within positive psychology and to develop, you know, interventions to promote character strengths is how they're usually described. And I think the evidence is fairly mixed at this point about most of those, you know, whether they, they achieve meaningful results that last longer than a couple of months, say. And a lot of them are really aimed at sort of warding off the more, they're really aimed at really at kind of warding off uh, negative developments, you know, so training kids to be resilient so they don't develop anxiety, say, is a, you know, a lot of, a lot of exercises are kind of aimed at that rather than developing sort of positive, actual positive virtues, you know? So there's a lot of unknowns still at this point, just if the Department of Education wrote a blank check, you know, to every school system in the country and said, you know, do character education, one big challenge would just be working out, you know, would be, we'd be trying to understand what actually works, you know? And I think that's what we don't really know an awful lot in terms of developing, sort of new modular interventions, if that's the approach, you know, that, that, that a school wanted to take. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest constraint, I suppose, just in principle, is, uh, you know, again, is scarce resources. And public schools in this country, and this is, a, again, one way in which we're a real global outlier, public schools in this country for, you know, for several decades, probably going back farther than that, have been unbelievably and sort of myopically focused on college attainment. I mean, that's just, that's basically what they exist for, you know, is, is uh, everything is geared toward college attainment. This despite the fact that most American high school students still today won't actually receive a college degree, you know, even a BA. And, you know, with that, with that there's a, there's, so there are an awful lot of, of resources that are being kind of, frankly, siphoned off, you know, to chase this sort of 
unattainable goal in, in my view of, of you know full college enrollment or you know universal universal college attainment and that comes at the expense of other of other educational goals not just at, not just character education but you know say you know what in european countries is called sort of technical or vocational education you know so when you mention this in the u.s setting this immediately for people who do education policy you know with this 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 is a uh, tracking and tracking is very bad because of you know you're narrowing, you know, a poor kid's life choices and, you know, that, which I mean, you know, fair enough, you are tracking does that to a certain extent. Um, but uh, I think we have to recognize that, you know, as or- Oren Cass puts this really nicely, actually, that we have tracking, we should, we should just recognize we have tracking in this call co- in, in this country, everybody's on the college track, you know, whether they want to be or should be or not, you know. And so I think that that in a way, you know, what the biggest challenge, I think, is, is coming to grips with the fact that education really does serve a diversity of ends beyond just educational attain you know and if we want to be serious about about reaching those about but actually serving those ends we have to invest in them you can't just invest myopically in in sat prep essentially you know and, and college prep and, and expect everything else that a school might do to sort of magically fall into place you know so yeah i think that's the i mean what's so what's to stop us nothing nothing really except that there's a deep political and frankly i think social aversion to recognizing that schools might just might serve other purposes besides college prep you know and in a way this is it's a it's a laudable feature i think in, in a lot of ways of of the american spirit you know i mean if i can put it this way the kind of a, our, our sort of political ethos is so is so thoroughly small d democratic you know that the is so sort of suffused with the idea that anybody can grow up to be anything you know and, and all life paths should be open to everybody you know that that the idea of sort of the idea that everybody from whatever background, you know, should be able to pursue the goal of going to college is so attractive, I think, to Americans that it's easy to get to get sort of suckered into to this this myopic fixation on that one that one goal, you know, so you can feel good about, you know, your town's high school sending three of its graduates to the Ivy League, you know, even if 40 percent of the graduates are going on to be underemployed and, you know, struggle to you know find a way in life. And a substantial portion of those will have two years of college with two years of college debt and no degree. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Which is another big track. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's a huge, a huge percentage. That's exactly right. Of, of uh, I mean, it's, I think it's something like, last date I saw it, something like 20%, you know, of high school graduates, you know, enroll in college, but don't graduate. I mean, that's a huge number of, of kids every year. Yeah. Who are leaving with no, no meaningful. And frankly, you know, there's another, there's another portion, you know, who, who increasingly get shunted, into majors which in actuarial terms are very bad bets you know in the job market and then end up with often four years of college debt and a degree but a degree they can't really use in any meaningful way you know and so yeah and i think that's it's a huge yeah it's a it's a real problem uh you know to be honest and so one thing i didn't also notice about your paper was that homeschooling kids are less likely to go to college and i'm wondering is this something that should concern homeschooling parents about the quality of education they're providing? Or is it this issue they have different goals or maybe they're directing their kids a little bit more effectively? What, what's driving that the differences in college attendance? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you notice about that, about those figures is that um, the data that the paper is based on, you know, as I mentioned, it's kind of old at this point, right? I mean, the school, the schooling effectively is assessed in the early 2000s, kind of the, the average, I think. And then the follow-up is assessed in 2010. And the reason the reason that's the case is it's it's surprisingly hard to find large longitudinal data sets that have information on school type. So this is sort of like the most recent, you know, we could our, our team could do. And, you know, so homeschooling's changed a lot in the last 20 years. I mean, anyone who's homeschooling, I think, you know, recognizes that there's been a huge increase, for instance, in what's called structured homeschooling, which is basically homeschooling that's kind of curricularly aligned 
more or less with with common core standards or that's sort of aimed in some way at college prep. So I think there's good reason to expect that that gap will have narrowed substantially, frankly, over the last two decades. So that that's one thing to consider. I think it's also reasonable to expect that the quality of homeschooling will be uneven. You know, frankly, just like the quality of public education is uneven. You know, it's going to vary a lot family to family. And some families are better equipped. You know, frankly, families where both parents are involved in homeschooling and have graduate degrees, you know, and I mean, you know, which is especially in the last couple of years is becoming more common are going to be better equipped, you know, to prep their kids for, for college than, than families that are, you know, where no, neither parents gone to college and it's a sort of cultural thing not to go to public school, you know? And, and so I think that, that, uh, yeah, you know, like with all, all, all school types, frankly, your mileage is going to vary, you know, significantly, I think, depending on sort of local, local factors. But as you, as you indicated, and we've, we've discussed this some already, I guess, yeah, in my view, it's, it's not an unmitigated evil, frankly, that homeschoolers attend college at lower rates than public schoolers. You know, as we, as we've discussed increasingly, especially it's, you know, it's, it's not obvious that enrolling in college or even graduating from college, you know, is a, is a straightforward pathway, you know, to a, a flourishing life or, you know, even a, even a financially successful life, you know? And so I think that I don't know the extent to which those, that divergence reflects, you know, sort of um, different preferences, you know, within the homeschooling population. But if it did, it wouldn't necessarily be bad news, you know, in my view. Really, I think we need to figure out a way to move toward a more, a more pluralist model of education, you know, to be honest, where, where people who are interested in pursuing a technical vocation, you know, however, whatever that looks like, have opportunities to do it, you know, and where there's opportunities, not just for education, but for gainful employment, you know, in those fields after. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, nobody's well served by, you know, the fixation on everybody. Everybody goes to college, everybody graduates from college, partly, mostly because it's not going to happen, you know, and there's no evidence that it's going to happen. So let's, let's stop pretending that it will. So I want to change topics a little bit and discuss a, a piece that you recently put into First Things Magazine on the issues of deaths of despair. Can you give the listeners a really quick backstory of what we mean by deaths of despair? Yeah, sure. So the expression deaths of despair uh, was coined by two economists at Princeton, uh, Ann Case and Angus Deaton, in a enormously influential paper they published in 2015 with that with that title, "Deaths of Despair" is in the title. And what they the findings that they they discussed in this paper were that mortality had substantially increased in the preceding 20 years. So in 2015, so beginning in the mid 1990s, and then really ramping up, you know, in the mid 2000s, and then and then up to their time of writing, mortality had substantially increased, particularly among less educated white Americans, and especially American men. And it had increased so much in a couple of years preceding their publication that that overall American life expectancy actually had declined. And it declined, I think, from 2014 through 2017. It was the longest period of decline. It, it then dipped down a bit. And uh, I'm not sure what the figures from 20... I mean, then, of course, COVID happened. And, and so the <laughs> the uh, that signal is being drowned a bit, I think, you know, in the last couple of years. But and this was a huge thing. Life life expectancy had not declined for successive years since World War in, in, in the United States since World War One. With, you know, with the Spanish flu was the last time that had that had happened. And and noticing that, pro- so that they the paper was an attempt to explain what was going on. And their their proposed explanation is the was a surge of what they what they described as deaths of despair, which is a a label for deaths from drug overdose, alcohol poisoning, cirrhosis of the liver, say, and suicide, which are, are deaths which tend to occur in people who have who have succumbed in various ways to to a, a kind of overall despair about the shape of their lives. You know, they're, they're people who are 
you know, becoming addicted to, to heroin, you know, or, or drinking themselves to death or committing suicide are people who have, who have sort of lost hope, frankly, you know, and typically, you know, prior to that have, have dropped out of, have sort of, uh, disconnected socially in a variety of ways as well. So they've, they've lost touch with their families. They've dropped out of church. They've lost their jobs, you know, and with that lost, you know, a great deal of, of what makes a life meaningful, you know, frankly, for most, for most people. And, They've recently, in, in 2020, they published a long book with the title, Again, Death of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, where they attempt a sort of more thorough analysis of what's actually driving, you know, the surge of, of death. And it, it's quite an elegant um, discussion. And they, they understandably, you know, see one of the, the principal causal drivers in the, uh, the sort of grotesque overprescription of, of opioids, you know, legalized heroin, as they call it, you know, starting in the 1990s and then, and then, rising to extraordinary levels up through about 2012. It subsided, rates of prescription have subsided some since then, although they're still in America, still way higher than almost any, uh, than rates anywhere else in the world. You know, I mean, five times, I think in 2025 times higher than, than the average rates in France, for instance. But those factors were sort of working in their view in concert with other forces that were sort of driving a, a kind of more general social disembedding. And so a key player in their story is, is the you know, erosion of economic prospects for blue collar workers in the Midwest. So the, the departure of, of manufacturing jobs, you know, from the Midwest, particularly, particularly, but not only associated with China's accession to the WTO, you know, and the, the sudden flight of skilled labor jobs, you know, or, or, or even less skilled labor jobs, you know, particularly out of, out of the, out of the country. This is also driven to some extent by NAFTA, you know, and the departure of, of, of car, you know, um, automotive factories, you know, south of the border and, so, you know, there are, there are a number of factors working in concert, but, you know, in their view, the, this is sort of the, the economic forces are sort of the, the most fundamental underlying factor that drives a kind of larger erosion of the sort of, the sort of the broader social landscape. It's not just that people become poor and then they, you know, immediately become drug addicted or, or commit suicide. In fact, most, you know, if you look around the world, especially most poor people don't do any of those things. You know, this is not a, this is not a straightforward causal story. What happens instead is that, you know, declining economic prospects for men, especially makes it harder, for instance, for men to get married, you know, men who don't get married or don't, can't stay married are much less likely to be, you know, strongly attached to their, to their families. They're much less likely to attend church. They're much more likely to drop out of other kinds of community church and, and other sort of forms of social participation. And, you know, over time, what that leads to is, you know, for a lot of these people is a sort of deep sense of, of loneliness, frankly, and despair you know, which ultimately culminates in their turning to, you know, these really destructive habits, which are sort of the proximate cause of their death. So, so it's a complicated, it's a really elegant and complicated story, but that's, yeah, the, the death of despair is a kind of catch-all for that, that whole trend, you know, from the 1990s up to today. Yeah. So it seems to me that the Deaton case argument is essentially economic factors leading into the sort of Durkheimian enemy within these communities. Do you think that's a fair representation of that argument? So it's, it, it, it's the, economics preceding a broader sort of decay of the the social foundations of community. Yeah, yeah, that's their view. And, you know, in the book, they do, I think on occasion, I haven't gone back to, to look at this recently, I think they do on occasion invoke Durkheim, uh, although not as often. I mean, they're economists, you know, and so I think you have to, it's not surprising that they see the, the story as as fundamentally an economic one, which, which sort of operates through, you know, social, it's sort of mediated socially in various ways. But, but yeah, they are, they, I think they, to their credit, they are really clear about the, the extent to which, you know, what drives deaths of despair 
the way they put it is what drives Dust's despair is not is not declining economic prospects, but the loss of a way of life, which is just what Durkheim meant, you know, by in his his famous book, he developed this theory in his landmark study of suicide. It's sort of the first great sociological study of suicide in the late nineteenth century, written not coincidentally during Europe's great wave of secularization, you know, which happened. It's a sort of sequenced differently in in some ways than than America's because it wasn't it wasn't preceded in Europe by kind of crash deindustrialization, you know, the way it was in 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 the U.S. But but he wrote this book because he had noticed a a pronounced spike of suicide across across Europe, particularly in in Protestant regions. And, and he, this is one of the one of the puzzles that the book is written to explain is why Catholic regions seem to be relatively less affected by this this wave of, of suicide. But one of the explanations he proposes is that in, in the book is that there is a that many of the suicides you know that Europe was witnessing in that period were were caused by what he called normlessness, anomie. French, you know, a sort of a, a sort of rootlessness, which arises effectively from, from the from the loss of a kind of unified vision of, of life that was supplied by by religion, among other things. So I don't know if you see this at all in the circles that you run in, but I was at an academic seminar pre-COVID, and it was focused on opioid deaths. Uh, we have a number of opioid researchers here at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was surprised that when the term "deaths of despair" was mentioned, it was largely laughed off. To be perfectly honest with you. And, and so the the issues were framed within the terms of physical addiction and then structural failures, particularly the uh, pharmaceutical industry and then other sort of policy failures. Why do contemporary discussions within academia related to death and despair shy away from these existential roots? I was taken aback by how how quickly they were um, discarded in terms of the conversation that we were having. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess we can. I can only speculate really about it because it's certainly not a I don't share that sensibility, you know, by any means, but, uh, you know, the sensibility you're describing. But, you know, I think that one of the difficulties, it seems to me, with the extent of current academic subspecialization, you know, is that the researchers who, who tend to focus on deaths of despair, you know, are principally working in, in, say, economic, sociology, and public health, you know, kind of broadly. And they're, they're really quantitatively focused and kind of policy-oriented, frankly. And I think it's very difficult, you know, if you if you work in a field that's sort of heavily shaped by the presumption that, the problems you're studying are amenable to public policy, you know, in a broad sense. It's difficult to reckon with the idea that that racking social crises might just not have solutions, you know, or not have any obvious solutions. And this is really a kind of terrifying thought, you know, I think for for an economist in particular to consider, you know, that there might just not be a, a quick fix, you know, there's no, so you can't just turn off the spigot, you know, say of the, of the opioids and, and that will, that'll, that'll resolve the problem. So that might be part of it. I don't know. I mean, I think another another issue is something I have noticed. I'll, I'll say in conversation with with some peers, you know, friends and colleagues, is that there's a kind of general reluctance, I think, to treat deaths of despair as a paramount social crisis because it's perceived as being a, like a, a a problem with white people. You know, frankly, uh, and I mean, this is you know to, to to put it really bluntly, and and you know, within the, the elite academy, especially, you know, this is just not, that's, there's not a lot of cachet, frankly, for like investigating the, the, the problems that white people have, you know, there's a lot of energy being invested in, in exploring other, you know, very real problems and grievances, you know, um, but one of the, I think, I think at this point, you know, the, the very real challenges facing, you know, poor, less, you know, relatively uneducated whites in this country are just not, they're not, you know, at the top of, of, the agenda for people who are, you know, staffing elite media institutions or who are, you know, shaping the research agenda in, in elite 
university. So, so I think that there, there are, there are probably subtle social pressures as well, sort of discouraging people from, from entertaining. So, you know, you might say, well, this is, this is like a medical, this is a problem of, of public health. We can adjust in the following ways. And then we should, you know, we should see the problem as resolved, you know, and, and the idea that there might be sort of deeper, dare I say, systemic, you know, <laughs> sort of factors uh, animating the, the, the crisis in those communities is, is, uh, yeah, I just think it's le- less interest in that in my, my experience. Yeah, and I think playing into it also is a reluctance to recognize the power of class and outcomes in America, particularly educational attainment, for some reason doesn't quite get as much attention as the uh, the real impact of race and gender for various reasons. So you've been writing a lot about the importance of religion, especially religious service attendance on health and well-being. And related to Deaths of Despair, you showed that those who attend religious services has have significantly lower rates of Deaths of Despair. So is this merely a socialization effect? meaning that maybe revitalization of the Elks Club would have the same effect, or is this unique to church? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, this is an area that our program has been exploring, you know, in various ways and at great length over the last, I mean, it's probably our our deepest area of research at this point over the last six years has been religious participation. And what we've consistently found in a number of different cohorts and, you know, age groups and, and study designs is that religious service attendance in particular shows stronger effects on well-being than all other forms of social participation combined. And that's even including marriage, actually, in most studies. Marriage is the next the next most efficacious in terms of its its effect on well-being. But yeah, religious service attendance goes way beyond the Elks Club. And the, the, the interesting question is really a why. You know, why and again this is an American in America the overwhelming of the research, you know, to date is on is on uh, American samples, and that means mostly Christian samples too, just given the, the religious composition of America, you know. But the question is why does religious service attendance. And I stress that, that that's really the marker to focus on. You know, I think very often I see news stories which say, you know, something like survey shows that, you know, Christians have divorce rates, say, identical to those of non-Christians or, you know, and that's always, you know, if you, if you, if you take a look at what the findings being reported are, it's always without fail, those kinds of findings are, are sort of self-identified Christians, you know, uh, so, so sort of a, a general religiosity. But if you actually, if you actually examine service attendance, so say c- compare people who attend services at least weekly to those who never attend, the differences consistently are huge. And and this this is even after you know, this is quite apart from whether the people not attending are self identified, self identify as Christians or as as nuns or whatever. Uh so it's it's participation that seems to to be driving, you know, these these significant well being effects. And, you know, I think what's what's the reason that that religious communities you know, continue to be so important, frankly, for well-being in the lives of so many, so many people, both here and, and elsewhere in the world, is that they bring together a number of elements which are present in other institutions, but which are not coordinated in the same way, you know, in the Elks Club, say. So there is a, you know, social community is a really important part of what makes religious communities a pathway to flourishing for a lot of people. But something else that's really important is, is being together with other people who, sh- with whom you share a sort of a common transcendental sense of meaning and purpose, you know, a kind of common, well, worldview, I guess you might say, you know, broadly speaking, a, a sense of what, what makes life worth living. You know, uh, you don't get that really from the, at least not from most Elks clubs in my experience, you know, and this is a, this is a meaning itself. A strong sense of meaning and purpose is itself, you know, a, a, a strong predictor it seems to be causally efficacious in promoting well-being. Another really important factor for, for suicide in particular seems to be the fact that churches, one of the things they're in the business of doing in the lives of their participants is 
uh, enforcing a pretty simple and stringent moral code. One aspect of which is don't kill, don't kill other people, don't kill yourself, you know? And, uh, you know, again, this is not something that most other civic organizations are in the business of doing, but it turns out these things matter a lot and they work together in important ways, you know, I guess I would say. So, yeah, it's not just a question. And this, I, I think this is, this is something that's really often lost, actually. I'm glad you asked about this because it desperately needs to be on the agenda in, in contemporary discussions in public health about the, you know, the crisis of loneliness, right? So in 2018, the UK appointed for the first time a minister of loneliness, you know, to address its growing public health, you know, rec- they recognized they had a growing public health crisis of, of, of loneliness in, in, in their country. And they're also experiencing, you know, now fairly sharp upticks and deaths of despair as well, not, not in the same order of the, uh, of the U.S., but following a similar pattern. And in, in the press release announcing the creation of this ministry, uh, one of the things I found, I mean, I, I read this recently and thought it was absolutely stunning. The minister announced that, that she was going to be launching an, a series of initiatives to promote social connection among elderly adults in the U.K., including, she said, uh, walking clubs and cooking classes. This was sort of the, this was like, the, this is the UK's answer. You know, they've recognized there's a crisis of, 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 uh, of social disembedding. And their answer to it is, is walking clubs and cooking classes, you know, which I mean, you know, if you have like any, even a passing familiarity with uh, the research on the kinds of social connection that matter most, like this is, you're putting a bandaid on a cancer patient. You know I mean? This is not the, this is not the solution. The crisis, I mean, I know more about the American scene than the UK, but I would be willing to bet that the people who are suffering most there are are, are experiencing disembedding from the institutions that historically have mattered the most. So so religious participation would be one and, and marriage would be another, you know, and, and I mean the idea that you're gonna solve the problem of of social, you know, dislocation in this country by promoting membership in Elks Clubs, you know, for instance, is just nonsense. It's not gonna I mean that's not gonna that's not the thing that makes the most difference in, in people's lives. Um so we need to yeah. So what about from a policy perspective? You know, I mean, we obviously can't make people go to church and we can't make people have conversion experiences. And we already have in the United States a pretty significant tax benefit for giving money to religious organizations. Uh, We seem to want them to exist. Other than that, what's from a policy perspective, what realistically can be done in order to promote religious participation from like a public health and public policy perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I mentioned before, and it's probably makes sense for me to start by saying, you know, as I indicated a little earlier, it's not obvious that there are solutions to these problems, you know, and I think, I think we need to, we need to like take a long, hard look at that possibility, you know, that like we, civilizations decline, you know, I mean, this is just a fact about, about the world and, and uh, all the evidence suggests that every, every great civilization that has, has existed, has at some point been on its way to not existing, <laughs> you know, and so, and I say that because honestly, I don't think anyone knows really how to, and you're right, this is the reason the UK Minister of Loneliness is talking about promoting cooking classes and walking clubs is because it's reasonably clear how you do that. And no one knows how to get people to go to church or get married. You know, everybody's trying to figure it out. Or if they get married, how to have kids, you know, people all over the world and lots of different places, China, now Japan, you know, Eastern Europe are trying to figure out how to do these things. And no one knows how to do them, you know, to be honest. And so I think that, it, yeah, it's a, but that being said, I'm not, I'm not totally without optimism. I mean, I think we should be realistic about the scope of the problem. It's very, it's significant, you know, frankly, and, and, uh, it's much easier to break things than to build them. You know, it's really easy. It turns out to break things, you know, that's the, you know, Newton's second law, right? Is things fall apart. So to some extent, you know, good policy, the best policy really is just delaying that decay, you know, to the extent that you can, you know, and once it's happened, reverse, reverse engineering it is not straightforward, I think. 
But, you know, I do think that at the, so we, we, we sort of kicked around, you know, a number of modest sort of modest proposals, not in a Swiftian sense, but just genuinely, you know, kind of small, small nudges, you know, that we, that we, we might implement. And one is to say, you know, from a public health standpoint, there's just no good reason why doctors shouldn't be talking with their patients about their religious participation. You know, and, and there are, there are obviously you, you, you'd want to be very thoughtful and, and deferential in the, as a physician, the way you did that, you know, and, and about social participation in a broader sense, but, but religious participation in particular seems to be, particularly in American settings, very important, you know, so in an ordinary intake survey to ask questions about patients' religiosity and, and to use that as a guide to further questions about, about participation, you know, and I think it'd be very reasonable for a physician, just for instance, again, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor and, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to have a standing, you know, to dictate to the AMA, you know, what kind of guidelines they should, they should publish. But this is something that, that Tyler, uh, you know, my, my boss Tyler has actually published on the sort of raising this as a question. And, and I think it's, I think it's a very reasonable suggestion to say, you know, look, doctors should be able to say to their patients, Hey, you know, you say that you, you say you self-identify as a Christian or as a, as a believing Jew or Muslim. You also have told me you you know, haven't been to church in a decade, you should just consider the possibility that if, you know, you, if you took an hour a week to go to a religious service, it might make a real difference in your life, you know, in very tangible ways. I think that would be, you know, even something as small as that. Cause I mean, the reality is the really striking reality is that in America, about 50% of the population self-identifies with some religious tradition, but doesn't participate in it on any regular basis. And that's a huge number of people, you know, who are, I would think of as relatively low-hanging fruit. I mean, some of those people are, are alienated from their religious tradition in various ways. And again, this is where you want to be careful, you know, you want to be careful in any, in any setting about encouraging people, you know, to join a religious community. But some people have histories of abuse, say, you know, or have, have been through, you know, lived through terrible scandals in their childhood church or whatever. And, you know, I mean, this is a, we have to, we have to assess every person's situation individually. But, but in general, you know, what the research bears out, I think, is that for most people, most of those people who are, who are staying home, you know, from church or from synagogue would be happier and healthier, I guess. They'd be flourishing, you know, more, more robustly if they, if they attended services, you know. And so I think at the very, you know, one part of it is just messaging, I think. Just getting the word out about this would be helpful, you know, because a lot of people who just, I think, can't be bothered, you know, frankly, to attend or they, you know, they dislike something about the church that they used to go to and it was it was annoying enough that they that it drove them away you know the sermons are bad or the music's bad or whatever so yeah i think that's one thing we could consider you know messaging of various kinds both coming from doctors and all other other public health authorities let's just say you know it's just people that we have you know the the president and the cdc you know and, and other the nih they have a bully pulpit you know they could use that in various ways if they wanted to and again this is a this is this gets tricky of course legally and i'm you know i don't want to wade into into constitutional interpretation you know and, and whether this the high wall of separation you know that the supreme court has has recognized in the last whatever 70 years is is the best interpretation you know of the first amendment or, or whatever but assuming that there weren't that there weren't insuperable legal obstacles you know to, to exercising that that bully pulpit like why not do that too you know so brendan i could talk about this stuff all day this was a really fun conversation but unfortunately we've run out of time. So thank you so much for joining the podcast and hopefully we might see each other in person one day. Thanks, Grant. It was a pleasure being with you. All right. Thanks so much. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. 
That's H-E-N-N-E Jewelers.com. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.